So uh, this week's topic is on the general subject of suffering. Again, just uh, to pick up from where we kind of left off two weeks ago, we are looking at what the Bible says about different things that we can use to help one another think biblically, feel biblically, act biblically. And, um, you know, uh, broadly the context is counseling, but more specifically, the context is just the one another conversations that we're hopefully having at church and during the week and that sort of thing. And uh, with this particular topic, it is both a difficult topic and a topic that comes up regularly. So, uh, in parentheses, suffering, it could include things like sickness, aging, death, or even persecution. There are many belief systems that try to interpret evil as not real. Christian science denies that it is real. Various Eastern religions in some ways deny that it is real or at least that it is important. Others say that it is unavoidable. Its fate, its karma, is just what will be. And others see it as a consequence of a dog-eat-dog world. Secular humanism, if man is all there is, then the reason there is suffering is just that there are bad people out there and it's just a fact of life. Christianity is the only faith that has a viable or a workable explanation and a hope-filled solution to the brokenness of the world. That doesn't mean that Christianity has no challenges, obstacles, hard points for us to sort of uh, work through, but, but that it is, has the only complete answer to these things. So, evil is real, and it is sourced in sin as the fundamental basis of problems in life. So, do you, think, do you agree with that statement? Do you think that evil exists because sin exists? Yeah, so people suffer, and, and this is where it gets tricky, and we'll talk more about this as we come down here. People don't want to see a connection between sin and suffering because then it sounds like we're being uncompassionate, right? Because if someone is suffering, then and we say that it's connected with sin, then we make it sound like it's their fault. But, and we'll get, we'll get more to th into this in a second, but let's talk about it for a minute. How is it possible for suffering to be connected with sin, but us to still have compassion toward people in the midst of suffering. Okay. Okay, we all have that same issue. What are some other things that go into the relationship between sin and suffering that help us to be compassionate or careful in the way that we talk to people? Okay, that's a big one. We know the, the cure, the solution to it. Okay. Good. 
Um, one of the important reasons that we should recognize that sin is the source of evil and the fundamental thing that leads to suffering is that, going back to one of the very first discussions we had along these lines, who has the authority to deal with suffering? It is not primarily the domain of the medical community, whether that be psychiatrists or doctors or so forth, or at least we should say not exclusively from this perspective. If the ultimate solution to suffering is found in God, then the Bible has answers for that suffering. And so we need to give priority to what God has said and his explanations for those things. Um, so where does sin begin? Sin began with Satan. Um, if you remember back to Genesis 1 and even Genesis 1.31, how did God describe his creation? It was good, and then he summed it all up as very good, right? So if everything began as very good, then I think we would have to argue that sin did not exist at that point. Uh, I think a connection point in this context for us with regard to the question of creation, which will come up again in the evening service tonight when we talk through our statement of faith, um, if everything is described as very good, in my mind that excludes the possibility of there having been a world full of sin prior to this very good creation. Now I suppose someone could make the argument, God wiped out all the bad and now everything's very good, but, but Genesis 1 starts out, God made it, everything is good, it's good, it's good, and it's not until you come to Genesis 3 that you have, and now it's broken. So, just something to think about with regard to how we understand theories of origin and creation and all of that. So, Satan rejected God's perfect world and God's design. Um, Isaiah 43.7 uh, is a verse where God talks, talks specifically about Israel, but perhaps by application of the world as a whole that he's created it for his glory. Satan rebels against God, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. The tension in those two passages is there's this kind of going back and forth between, between God describing a human king rebelling against God and God describing Satan who stands behind that human king as the one who is ultimately opposing God. And so that uh, makes it complicated to look at. But I think those passages do describe, there's some places where it's clearly describing Satan and not just the human king. So he rebels against God. He was exalted and then he was cast down. He received punishment for his rebellion and will be punished again, as we see at the end here. Satan will be finally and fully defeated. This is clear from the promise of Genesis 3, where God said to Adam and Eve that the uh, seed of the woman will bruise, he will bruise his heel, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, Romans 16 talks about that as well, Revelation 20. Colossians 2 makes it clear that even now his battle is lost. So sin began with Satan. Sin impacted humanity directly through Adam. So death entered the world because of Adam's action. Romans 5.12 makes that clear. The curse of sin then mars the world. What does Romans 3 have to say about... Um, 
well, we'll get to that in a second. What does Genesis 3 have to say about how sin affects the world? What are some of the consequences, the results of sin that we live with? Right? Yeah. Romans 8, the earth groans, for sure. Good. So the curse of sin mars the world. There is now death. There is now disease. There is now conflict. There is now work that is not pleasurable, but toil and difficult. All of these things are part of the curse of sin. Humans are born into sin. What did David say about this with regard to his birth? Yeah. In iniquity and sin, my mother conceived me. Okay. Um, and people dispute that verse, but the reality is that um, even if you say, well, I don't agree with taking that verse, Romans 5 makes it clear that all of us are in sin. We're born in sin. Ephesians 2 says we are all dead in sin and belong to the kingdom of Satan in opposition to God. But it's some people would say, well, but none of those things are my fault. And I suppose there's a sense in which we could agree with that. But the reality is we all willingly sin. So even if Adam had not sinned and we weren't condemned along with him, which we are, we still all willingly choose to sin. Romans 3 says, all of sin and falls short of God's glory. Um, what else does it say in Romans 3 about sin? How does, what sort of picture does it paint of humanity? What are some of the phrases, maybe, that it describes, if you remember? There is not one who is good. What else? No one seeks God. Describes the way that we talk. It says the poison of asps, of serpents, is under our tongues. Um, we all go our own way. Paints a very bleak picture of human nature which is important for us to remember in a world which wishes to ignore all of that. What does the average person on the street say about other people? How would they describe the other people? They're, They're basically good, you know? You know, yeah, there's some bad ones out there, but people are basically good. But as we look closer, why do we do the things that we do? Apart from Christ, why do we do the things that we do? We're selfish. So that person that's really nice, he's not doing it to be really nice. He's doing it because he thinks he'll get something out of it or because it's an easier way to live than going out and breaking the law. We are basically evil. And that is a hard thing for us to come to terms with because we don't want to acknowledge that we're evil because if we acknowledge that we're evil then we realize that there's a problem that we can't solve and that we need the God that we've been trying to ignore sometimes our whole lives. Humans receive punishment for sin. What does Romans 6 say about sin? What's the wages of sin? Death. Hebrews 9 says it this way, it's appointed a man once to die and after this comes judgment. And when it comes to the question of judgment, there's another verse which says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so that is something that should be 
uh, a motivation or a real and actual concern. Uh, there's another passage where it says, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's not talking about Satan. That's talking about God. And so God's wrath is something that we often do not think about, speak about, sing about. It's not a normal part of our daily conversation, but it is something that we should be aware of because um, of its connection with salvation, because of the urgency that it puts on our having a right relationship with God, all those sorts of things. The only solution to sin is found in the finished work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, He made Him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If we think about that, Christ, no sin. God declares him as sin so that we might have his righteousness. And at first glance, that sounds like that's not fair. Why in the world would it be that way? But that is the way that God set it up. As it says in uh, Romans 3, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Christ's work secures victory over sin's penalty. According to 1 Peter 3, sin's power. 1 Corinthians 15 says the strength of sin is the law and Christ's victory over sin means that it is defeated. The result of sin is defeated. Death, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? And um, we have that victory in Christ. And ultimately, sin's presence. Uh, also in 1 Corinthians 15, when this corruptible has put on the incorruptible, this mortal has put on immortality, Death will be swallowed up in victory, and we will no longer be plagued by the sin that now is a part of our lives. So, sin began with Satan. Sin impacted humanity directly through Adam. And sin's effects continue today. We'd often talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil, or perhaps you've heard that you know, grouping of statements before. And that is probably a good way to look at it. First of all, society is corrupted with regards to the world. Um, turn here and read for you John 15. It says, If you were of the world, the world was love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. So society is set in opposition to God. This is a complicated discussion because is human culture bad or good? Let's just throw that out there. Is human culture bad or good? Yeah. To the extent that it reflects a godly perspective of the world, it is good. To the extent that it is driven by man's selfishness and rejection of God, it is bad. And sometimes those things are intertwined in such a way that it's difficult to separate them at first glance. And so this is why um, this is why I think we have some of the discussions that we have about things like uh, music, what we wear, um, the way that we talk. Um, what is what defines a person who is polite or impolite. All of those things are connected with our culture. 
some of which is informed by sinfulness, some of which is informed by the Bible. And so it's not an impossible task, but it is a difficult and one task that requires much thought in unraveling all of those relationships. Symbols change over time. Um, I mean, so here's an example. And, and this kind of comes from the, the realm of thinking about a missionary going to another culture. Suppose you were a missionary and you arrived in a new place. And in that new place, uh, the men stayed at home and cared for the children and the women went out and gathered fish. How would your understanding of the Bible affect your interpretation of that culture and whether any aspects of it are good or bad or need to change? Okay. Okay. So there's things that we have to think about. Um, now that's something that is would have to do with roles in the home, which might be further down the line of things that we would want to work toward fixing. Because obviously the first priority would be that they understand and know Christ, and then some of those other things hopefully would follow as as they're taught more about God's word. Um, what about a culture in which it is acceptable to expose infants that are not wanted to the elements in the hopes that they would die and we don't have to take care of them? I mean, that was a part of Greek culture, right, in Sparta. You had a child that was weak, or a child you thought might be weak, leave it out on the hillside. If it survives, great. If it doesn't, then, you know. Is that aspect of culture opposed to God or in support of God's will? Yeah. Why? Okay. Yeah. And if we're if we bear the image of God, then life has value and we shouldn't carelessly discard it. Okay. Um What about things like let's say you go visit a tribal people and they sing and as they sing they clap their hands. Is it sin or is it not sin and should we do it and these are complicated questions, right? But I think that sometimes we're quick to say, this is wrong because it's different. And what I would urge us to do is say, is this something that the Bible says something about? And in the case of the clapping of the hands, I mean, there's a lot of that imagery in Psalms, right? Either literally or figuratively connected with the worship of God's people. I'm not then saying that we just immediately start doing that in our services. I'm just saying as an example, society's corruption by sin is a complicated topic and our relationship to culture is something that we should, we should think through carefully. All right, so society's corrupted. People hate God and his people because they're in opposition to God's will. Secondly, those around us commit personal acts of sin. Sometimes this is the Jonah effect, right? What was going to happen to the sailors on Jonah's boat? They were all going to drown. Who was the one that was, at that moment, largely responsible for the situation they found themselves in? Jonah. And so there are cases in which the sin of others affects us. If someone <coughs> decides to commit adultery, that affects his family or her family. If someone decides to steal, 
same thing. That's not just going to affect that person, but people around that person. And so those around us commit personal acts of sin. Uh, Acts 2.22, the example of those who crucified Christ. They committed sin. That sin impacted clearly Christ and his followers, right? Sin pervasively corrupts thoughts. Psalm 14, the fool says there is no God. Romans 1, we all go our own way. Romans 3, we already talked about. It corrupts our actions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and some other passages have vice lists. Um, malice, anger, bitterness, all those sort of things. As well as our desires or feelings. Anger, worry, fear, all those sorts of things. Sin affects all of those things in our lives individually. And then I put this under physical suffering because I think that it is largely a consequence of living in the world in which we live. I don't think it's as closely connected to the flesh, and I don't think it's as closely connected to the devil, although it is possible. I think the primary way that we experience physical suffering is connected with the world in which we live. Turn over John 9, because I think this is an important thing to think about. This will come up again a little bit later, but some will read John 9, 1 through 5, please, if you would. So, whose fault was it that he was blind? What was the, the intermediate or maybe the ultimate cause of his blindness? I mean, we'd have to say in a world without sin, there would be no blindness or disease or imperfection, right? So, this I think, this passage illustrates very well this reality that sin is the reason that these evil things exist and intersect with our lives. But what is the ultimate purpose uh, that God's trying to accomplish here? Verse 3. Yeah, the works of God might be displayed in Him. So, if you face sickness disability, all of these sorts of things. If there if you examine your life and there is no uh there is no clear sin in which you God could be using that thing primarily as something to arrest your attention, redirect the course of your life, those sorts of things, then the only reasonable explanation that I think we can come back to is what it says here in John nine. 
so that the works of God might be displayed. What that teaches us about God is difficult to think through because we want to see God as good, all-knowing, all-powerful, and a lot of people will say, well, then there should be no suffering in the world. But in John 9, we have a God who knew that it was going to happen, caused it to happen, so all-knowing, all-powerful, and is accomplishing good, but the good is not necessarily the good that we would have planned ourselves. The good is that His glory is brought about. And the good is also, as we see as we continue through the chapter, what is best for this man. Because what ends up happening for this man as he comes through the end of the chapter? What's his relationship with Christ at the end versus at the beginning? He worships, which is what God made us to do. And so God can accomplish good. The greatest good is His glory. And along with that is us doing what we were created to do in the context of suffering. And this is an important truth for us to come to terms with because if we do not, we will be bitter or confused or angry with God because we won't understand why these things are taking place. Now, can we say in specific why this particular situation is taking place in this exact moment? No, but in broad terms, I think that what we see in John 9 applies to circumstances in which we face suffering, physical suffering, that is not immediately apparent as a result of our own sin. So, sin affects the world as a whole. Sin is connected with the flesh. Romans 7 talks about this inner conflict between right and wrong. I want to do right, but I don't do right. But there's this constant battle. How will I be delivered? Through the power of Christ. Some people see that as before salvation. I would take it as being the ongoing Christian experience. And then finally, the devil. Satan opposes God's will. 1 Peter 5.8, he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 2 Corinthians 4.4 said he's the God of this world who's blinded the minds of the people so they would not believe. Satan opposes God's will, seeks to undermine God's work by attacking his people directly or via demons who are allied with him. We have a couple of case studies that we'll get to next week. Um, so... If you're worried we're not getting through the material, I'm planning for it to take two weeks. So, And I think we have to also recognize the world, the flesh, and the devil, the reality of those three avenues in which sin touches our lives are not beyond or above or ultimately more powerful than God's sovereign purpose. So that's at the top of page 35 there. God's purpose sovereignly encompasses all of these without undermining man's accountability to God and envisions the final defeat of sin. We could say it this way, God uses sin, but is never its immediate cause, nor is he guilty for the sinful acts of people. And some people will say, well, you can't say that. Because if we have a human being 
we see someone walking across the road and we see a car coming to hit them and we don't call out to them or maybe come push them out of the way, something like that, we would feel like we bear some sense of responsibility, right? In God's case, if He is all-powerful, why wouldn't He just automatically make sure no one gets hit by a car crossing the street? That's the sort of question that people ask. And I think the reality that we have to come to terms with is that we don't know all of the variables, that what we see as the highest good is not always the highest good, and that ultimately it comes down to whether we trust God as who He is and who He's shown Himself to be, or whether we decide that we can sit in judgment on God, evaluate His actions, and say, what you did was wrong. From a human perspective, the situation seems very simple. From God's perspective, knowing all of these different details, we don't know all the things that God knows. We don't know the long-term effects of what's going on there. And I'm not trying to say that evil is okay because God makes things work out in the end. I'm not saying that. But I, what I am saying is God's purpose transcends, transforms, and defeats the evil in this world. And these are hard truths to think through. Especially when you start talking about things like like rape, like infanticide, uh, through abortion, like all of these different things. These are hard things to think through. They are evil. They are wrong. No one should be feel like they're okay. And yet, God can work in and through those circumstances for the good of those involved to accomplish His purposes to ultimately defeat sin. And again, this is, these are hard things to wrestle with, but I think that as we look at the picture that the Bible paints, that's what we have to come, come to the conclusion of. Second main point, persecution, sickness, aging, and death are some of the primary ways the curse of sin impacts human beings on a daily basis. If the world and the flesh and the devil are the avenues through which sin intersects with our lives, then these words are some of the phases or areas of our lives that we see as being affected by sin. So they're related, but they're not, they're not like a one-to-one -one relationship with what we were just talking about. What's persecution? The willful mistreatment of God's people by those who do not believe. And so we see the connection between the world. The world hates you because you follow me, Right? So we do see the connection with that one. 2 Timothy 3, John 16, Acts 14, persecution is not a question of if, but when. And persecution is a part of sharing in the experience of Christ. This doesn't mean that we accomplish something that Christ didn't accomplish on the cross by suffering in the way that Christ suffered. But it does mean that we have a closer connection to Him in His suffering as we suffer for the same reasons. Does that, hopefully that makes sense. Sickness ranges from the common cold to congenital conditions, things that people are born with, to terminal and terrible diseases. Sickness has various sources. It may result from personal sin. A few chapters earlier, there's the guy who's lame. 
and John 5.14 says this, Jesus says, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. People dispute whether that means he was sinning before and that's the reason that he was lame, or whether Jesus is saying, if you sin in the future, something like lameness or worse could happen to you. Either way, I think it draws this connection that sin can have a, a immediate result of personal suffering. I mean, we see this illustrated on a regular basis. If, if I sin... Um, if I sin by, you know, stealing a car and going on a high-speed chase, there's a much higher probability that I'm going to die before my time, humanly speaking, right? And so there's a clear connection between a sinful act and a result of that. When it comes to something like sickness, um, 1 Corinthians 11 says that those who took God's, the Lord's table unworthily and without thought and carelessly and disrespectfully some of them had died in connection with that disregard for God and who He was, who He is. So that's a sobering thing to think about. Sickness may result from life in a sin-cursed world directed by God to bring glory to Himself. We just looked at that in John 9. Sickness may result from sinful choices by others. Uh, I don't know if every last Israelite bowed down before the golden calf. But a whole lot of them died in a plague right after they did that, right? And so, you know, there are a variety of reasons why people are sick. I sinned, someone near me sinned, or perhaps some combination of those two with the ultimate result that God will bring himself glory. Sickness rightly produces sorrow and awareness of our fragility. Um... It is much easier for us to recognize that we need God when we are flat on our backs and can't do anything. Because it's easy for us to pretend that we're in control of our lives and everything is going well when life is normal. But when we are sick and we can't do basic things, it either drives us to despair or drives us to recognize that God is who He is and we need Him and we are not self-sufficient. Hopefully, as well, it should produce in us a desire to encourage others. And this is where sometimes we forget. Sometimes we're sick. We turn to God and we say, God, I need your help. And then we come over here and someone else is sick. And we don't immediately make the connection, well, God caused this to happen in my life so that I can encourage this person at this point in time. Much in the same way that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, God bless this person financially so that they can help this person who's in need. In a similar way, God gives us physical trials that we go through, that He encourages us through, so that we can then encourage others in physical trials. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing. We should realize that there's a little bit of a difference between, you know, someone breaks both of their legs and we come and encourage them, and we try to say, well, you know, one time... I uh, cut my finger. I mean, the, there's a difference in severity between those two things, right? But at the same time, if you cut your finger and it got infected and, and, and somehow in the course of that there were truths about God that encouraged you, you can still share that with that person without trying to say my situation and your situation are exactly the same. Does that make sense? So, so we have a responsibility to encourage other people. Sickness ought to provoke a longing for God's presence and restoration of all things. We have this back of our minds awareness that our world is broken. 
when it gets up close and personal, then we are reminded that we ought to long for heaven and the victory of Christ over our broken world. So persecution, sickness, aging affects human beings from the moment of birth. Negatively, aging involves a steady decline in strength and mobility. In the beginning, it seems that people had longer lifespans. Look at Genesis 5. Corruption of the gene pool, ongoing mutation, contributes to increasingly shortened lifespans. Uh, I'd have to double-check this statistic again, but the last time I looked it up, in 1900, the life expectancy for males was about 47 and 49 for women. There have been some abilities to reverse that, through medical technology, but sometimes it ends up being a prolonging of life rather than a correction of the problems of aging. We've figured out that if we give you this pill and this shot and this procedure and all these sorts of things, we can make you last longer but not necessarily live better. I'm not saying that's good or bad or otherwise, I'm just making an observation. Um, Aging will be done away with in terms of slow decline in the eternal state. Revelation 21 says there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. There won't be getting up in the morning and saying, my back hurts. Or just all of the things that are effects of sin as our bodies decay around us. Paul talks about the fact that our outer shell, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and it is weak and it is broken but the more that it is damaged, the more that God's glory and power shines through us, hopefully. Positively, aging is often associated with wisdom in the Bible, Proverbs 20, verse 29. Those who are older ought to serve as examples, Titus 2, and those who are older ought to be shown respect, Leviticus 19. So persecution, sickness, aging, and then death. Hebrews 9, death comes to all people. Unless Christ comes back and raptures the church, before you die, you will die. Death has various causes. Punishment for personal sin. Ephesians 6 says this, if you don't honor your parents, you're more likely to die young. Death comes through life in a sinful world. You see that in Acts 9. Death comes by the sinful acts of others, such as murder. Death comes as release from trial. It's important to remember that death is not permanent for the Christian. And even in death, believers are with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And death has no power over God and will be finally defeated when Christ comes in victory. What I want to wrap up with this morning, and then next week we'll talk through some case studies, is this. The Bible gives hope in comforting those who are facing various kinds of suffering. Trials are not intended to drive us to sin. What does James say the purpose of trials is? Okay, yeah, produce patience, endurance, increase our faith, good. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.13, what does it say about God's strength in the context of trials? Are we ever required to sin in a trial and a temptation? No. God will make a way of escape, which does not mean that you can handle it on your own, but rather that in the power of God we have the ability to respond properly. 
Trials are not by accident, but to increase our maturity and faith and our awareness of God's character and work. Trials are temporary. This is something that is hard to remember when you're in the middle of a trial that lasts a decent span of time. Trials are temporary. And our faith will be vindicated. This is another thing. Sometimes we're in the middle of a trial and we're tempted to give up on our faith. But Second Thessalonians 1 says, the combination of faith, suffering, and perseverance of faith in the midst of suffering is a sign of God's work in you and that you are worthy to enter God's kingdom. Obviously not through your own strength, all that sort of thing, but that you are worthy to enter God's kingdom. So if you have faith and you encounter suffering and you go astray from following God, then that says something else, right? It doesn't say that we are faithfully following God. It may be a sign that God is not at work in us. And so trials are an opportunity for our faith to be vindicated. Trials may not end in full release in this life. This is something that, again, is, is hard to come to terms with. We want to be able to look at someone who has just had some kind of serious medical procedure and say, it's going to be all better in a year. It's not always going to be all better, humanly speaking, in a year. You may go through something and you may not be able to walk again or speak again or um, do things that you did in the way that you did before you encountered that difficulty. But there is coming a day when we'll be in God's presence and all that will be undone. Trials drive us to seek comfort in the right places. You think about the Psalms. Our default response in the context of trials is often to seek comfort from other people, from things that bring us temporary joy, like food or various substances or whatever. And instead, what do we see the pattern in the Psalms? Turn to God. Turn to God. Turn to God. We see the examples of various Old Testament saints, which is why we need to have an awareness of what it says in the Old Testament as well as the New. I mean, we have the example of Paul. He went through a lot of suffering, but there's many other examples in the Old Testament of people who went through great difficulty and God was with them. And then there's also examples of those in the early church. And so, this is not a topic that's particularly exciting or happy to talk about, but it's something that's such a constant part of our life that if we fail to have a godly perspective on it, we are not going to make the most of the trials that God brings in our lives. We're not going to encourage the people around us like we should. And we're not going to be a testimony for God as we could have been to those who do not yet know Him. And so next week we'll look at three or four case studies that will help us think through, you know, what are some biblical principles that are connected with these truths that we've looked at and how they should affect the way that we live. But as we uh, think about these things, remember, we live in a world that's broken. We have a God who's coming in victory and will set things right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to think about your work um, in our lives. And we pray that you will continue to work on our lives, help us to draw closer to you, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.